0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 70. The Brewers get another series win, two series wins in a row. We're not going to dwell on the fact that they should have had a sweep, but they should have had a sweep. Joey Weimer, what a game on Wednesday. What a breakout. He's in the middle of a 10-game hitting streak. He sets a Brewer record. Could he win a gold glove? We had that discussion on the B93 Morning Show this week. We'll break all of that down. The mullet man, it is back. And it is working for Joey Weimer. i will also give you a review of the AmFam Field Suites. We got hosted in a suite on Wednesday. We'll break that down. It was good. As you might expect, that's the review. It was good. As you might expect, watching a baseball game from a suite is good. In the NBA, the Bucks add another assistant coach to Adrian Griffin's staff, and it's another former Bucks assistant and former Bucks interim coach, Chris Paul. Sounds like he's going to get waived by the Phoenix Suns. That was surprising news. That got Bucks Twitter stirred up as well. Is he a guy they could even bring in? Would you want him? The Nuggets are up two-one in the NBA Finals, Game Three in Miami coming up this weekend. We had the big live PGA golf merger as well as a Bush Light. Peach review. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It ties. Yes! Yes! The yes! Win! yes. Here comes Melvin to the 25 to the 20. Gordon 15, 10, 5. Touchdown. Wisconsin. Record breaking run. We're going to smash up the middle. And, it. and there is your Super Bowl Dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, and a pedicle ball throws it down! Swinging fly ball! We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, literally as we clicked record on this podcast, I had a sip. A sip. Nothing more than a sip. Although I don't think FCC regulations, there are no guidelines there for podcasts. You can kind of do whatever you want, but it was just a sip. Only one. again! Maybe two. It is tasty. We had our local Bud distributor, Larry's Distributing, was in the studio this morning on B93 talking about a fundraiser, a Brat Fry fundraiser at Miesfeld's on Saturday for the children of Sheboygan County dealing with cancer and those families. And he knows that I have a proclivity for a good old-fashioned domestic beer. My friends call it scumbag beer taste affectionately. Some of the different beers I've enjoyed over the years have been described as mop water, but I enjoy them. And I do love me a good ice cold Bush Light, a nice Bush Latte, as the kids say. Bush Light had a different version of its beer come out, I want to say three or four years ago, called Bush Light Apple. That was their summer go to, the way Liney's does Shandy. Bush Light did Apple. And when that came out, people went nuts for it. They really liked it. And it was good. Sometimes those beer. Apple beers can be a little overwhelming, but it was just enough, just a little bit to wet your beak, just a little apple crispness in it, not overwhelming, and people loved it. And they announced at the end of the season last year, that was the last thing they were going to do, the last Bushlight apple they were going to do, and people, of course, hoarded them. Some people who host podcasts have 30 packs that are just sitting in the basement waiting for a rainy day. But I guess the new version is a peach version. I didn't even know that. And our buddy Tyson, who did the interview, he came in bearing gifts like the three wise men. And he came in with Bushlight Peach. I said, I didn't even know this was a thing. And he said, this isn't even available in stores until the end of June, John. There is a chance you are the first person in America that has the Bushlight Peach 30 rack. So when people ask me, John, 17 years into radio, how are things going? Pretty, pretty good, I would say. As I sip my Bush Light Peach at 10.05 in the morning. You tell me how you think it's going. But I might be the first person, the first consumer not connected to Bud or Bush that has had a sip of these bad boys. And they are delightful. A little warm. They weren't cold. (laughs) So it's a little warm. but That's fine. But I can see these being a great patio beer over the course of the summer. Ice Cold Bush Light Peach. Pretty good. I would give it... On a scale of 1 to 10 on the scumbag beer taste, I would give it a solid 8.4. Really nice beer. I can see throwing a few of these in the freezer when I get home and enjoying them tonight on the patio. All right, let's talk about the Brew Crew. They win the series. Baltimore coming into the series. Third best record in baseball. As we talked about on Friday, I'm not sure anybody really saw that coming from Baltimore. They came on strong at the end of last year. There's a ton of good young talent, but... I don't know that anybody saw them taking a couple of steps forward. Certainly you always expect with a young team that shows you something at the end of a year. As a fan base, you're always hoping they'll take a little step forward the next year, a half step, or maybe compete for a playoff spot. Well, they seem to be taking a couple of large steps forward. Third best record in baseball coming into the series. Brewers get the extra innings win on Tuesday. Joey Weimer with the walk-off shot after he shaved one of the most glorious mullets into his head that I think these eyes have ever seen. And they made a big deal out of that on the broadcast on Tuesday. Then he comes up in the 10th inning. Brewers come back, and he ends up having the walk-off hit in the bottom of the 10th inning. Carries that over into Wednesday, where your boy was enjoying the sweet life at AmFam Field. And the Brewers Radio Network was hosting Strange Brew Podcast. They said, we got to get this podcast. Strange Brew? Anybody heard of it? We've got to get this podcaster up here and show him a good time. Now, Brewers Radio Network was and does host their affiliates at times in their luxury boxes, which they have one at AmFam Field. And from time to time, they'll invite their affiliates into town and have a game at the in the box, in the suite. And it was our turn on Wednesday. And I've never been to a suite at Miller Park or AmFam Field, and my review is that it was quite fun. <laughs> as You would expect it's a lot of fun. I was very proud of myself on Wednesday as a Sheboyganite who is true Sheboygan, where the old proverb, the old German proverb is, if it's free, it's for me. That's a German proverb that has made its way to Sheboygan culture. And when you walk in, my wife went, and just a bunch of our coworkers here, when you walk in, you are met with a table of meat. (laughs) There's nothing better than that. I've always said that. And there's brats and hot dogs and chicken buffalo chicken sliders and pretzel bites and chicken tenders and a huge plate of just cookies and brownies and a cooler stocked of full of ice cold beer, both good and scumbag beer. No bushlight peach though. But it's as you would expect. There's couches, TV in there. You can watch that. We turned the NBA Finals game on before we left because the game, the Brewer game was such a blowout. You go sit outside of the glass window and watch the game. It's nice. It is very nice. I don't know if I can go back to regular viewing. In the blog, I wrote about it the next day. I compared it to the Kramer scene in Seinfeld where he's on private courses and said, I can't go back to public courses, Jerry. I can't. I won't. I felt that same way. How can I go back to regular seating? With regular people. (laughs) I'm sure I'll be in the 400 section the next time I'm there. But it is. If you ever have a chance, it's a lot of fun to do that. And the Brewers played so well that night, and Joey Weimer was right in the middle of it again. He had an 11 total base game. And for those that don't follow, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you know what that means. But every hit you get gets you a base or multiple bases. A single gets you one total base. A double gets you two, triple three, home run four. And he set the record that night with a four for four day, two home runs, a double, and a single. He set the Brewer record for individual or total bases in one individual game. The list of people that were tied for that record with 10, we did a little trivia revolving around this during the morning show this morning. It's quite an interesting list. Rock is on that list, Bill Schroeder. He didn't just catch a perfect game or a no hitter from Juan Yabis, he's done more than that. He had a 10 total base night his rookie year in 1984. Greg Vaughn, who is one of the first players I really liked on an individual basis. We were talking a few weeks ago about the Blue Jays being the first team that I hated. Most sports fans remember the teams that they root for, but they also remember those first teams that really got that hate fire stoked, and the Blue Jays were that for me. Greg Vaughn was one of the first individual players that I really liked because he was a home run hitter, and kids, and chicks. Can we still say that? Can we go with the old 90s chicks dig the long ball? Kids dig the long ball too. Just a guy who was hitting 400 foot home runs. He was the power hitter in the middle of the lineup when I was growing up. I really like Greg Vaughn. Greg Vaughn in 1990 had a 10 total base game. Jeff Cirillo who is probably one of the most underrated players in Brewer history because he was on some really bad teams. He had a 10-total base game in 1995. Casey McGee. Remember Casey? For about two years there, really good at the hot corner. Did they trade him then or cut him? I can't remember how he left the team. I want to say he was traded and then kind of frittered away over the course of a year or two in other places. He was in Pittsburgh for a while. In 2009, he had a 10-total base game, and Kest, Daddy, Kest in here, had a 10-total base game a couple of years ago in 2019, but Joey Weimer sets the record with 11. Again, I think we can just point to the mullet. The mullet has changed his entire career. Forget about metrics, sabermetrics, and baseball analytics, and all that stuff. Throw it all out. Mullet haircut. The mullet equals hits. Ask Billy Ray Cyrus. When he had a mullet, he was cranking out country hits left and right. He shaved the mullet. It was like Samson. He couldn't write a song. But he shaved that mullet to the side of his head, and he's been on fire. He's got a 10-game hitting streak. We weren't talking about him after the walk-off hit on Tuesday. I wasn't anticipating talking about him on Wednesday morning on the morning show and then him going out and making some history with a two-home run game on Wednesday night. But after that walk-off hit, we did talk on the air about how he seems to be a guy who is figuring things out. Joey Weimer has always put up numbers in the minor leagues. Power numbers, always put up offensive numbers, and he's always been a very good defensive player. And he is already, right now, I don't even know how many games he's into his major league career. 60-ish games. He is already an elite defensive center fielder. I talked about that on the air, too. It must have been Wednesday morning, and I had a text or ask if if I think he could win a gold glove. And... The gold glove question, like we learned with Low Kane, doesn't necessarily mean it's just based on merit. Does he deserve a gold glove if he continues to play the way that he is playing currently, the way he plays defense in center field? Yeah, he may deserve one. But you also need name recognition. I mean, you think of some of the gold gloves, too. Derek Jeter won a million gold gloves, and by almost any analysis, he was not a good defensive shortstop, but he was one of the most popular and productive names in the league. That played a role in that. And Low Kane played gold glove caliber defense his entire career and should have won multiple gold gloves in his return to Milwaukee. And it wasn't until, what, his second to last year, the year before he got cut in the middle of the year, that he finally won a gold glove. So deserving a gold glove and actually winning one, it's two separate questions. If he continues to play defense the way that he is right now, Yes, he would deserve a gold glove. Will he win a gold glove? No, because nobody knows who he is. There are Brewers fans that are now learning about him, but there were Brewers fans before last week that were kind of probably 50-50 as to whether or not they knew who Joey Weimer was. But that elite defense kept him at the major league level while his bat was really scuffling. Again, he put those numbers up offensively in the minor leagues. He was right above 200 with his batting average in April. He hit 160 in the month of May. And looked pretty lost, if we're honest. And he has a different kind of swing. And when he was really struggling in the month of May, I wondered to friends, and I texted a couple of my buddies too, his swing, you want to be in Major League Baseball, take it from a podcaster, (laughs) in Major League Baseball, you really want to have your hands in, you want to be more compact, and you want to swing the bat quickly through the zone. He has kind of a tick, similar to Gary Sheffield in a way, where he... Swags that bat once as a timing mechanism. Keston did that a little bit too. He wags the bat once, but then he has kind of an outreach looping swing. And when you got guys gassing you up at 99, 100 miles per hour, you cannot waste precious time in the swing zone the way that he's he was swinging it. And I kind of thought, oh, I wonder if that swing is going to translate to the major league level against major league pitching. Well, he answered that in resounding fashion this week. Now that he's getting more comfortable in timing things up, the contact that he's making, and he's getting his hands in. He still does have that little bat wag he does, but he, when he makes contact through the zone, and he has been doing it consistently now for a couple of weeks, he's a lot of fun to watch. 10-game hitting streak, that big 4-for-4 four four day. His numbers in June, and I realize we're not at the end of June. It's June 9th. It's not like we're even in the middle of June. It's a pretty small sample size still. But his batting average after another hit in the rubber match against Baltimore, or in the third game against Baltimore on Wednesday on Thursday, His batting average in the month of June is almost 500. He's slugging over 500. His OPS is like 1,600. Just banana numbers. And we'll see how close they are to that by the end of the month. But he's just been a lot of fun to watch. And you combine what he's doing now, even if he only is able to do 50% of the numbers he's putting up in the last two weeks, if he can do that and he's giving you that defense in center field... What a difference maker that is going to be in the lineup. His defense in center field is so good. I wonder what they're going to do with Garrett Mitchell. They'll find a way to use Garrett Mitchell. But I think Garrett Mitchell, he might be in a Wally Pip situation here where he got injured, and he was an elite center fielder. He's got a great arm, and he has outstanding range, and he was graceful in center field. But Weimer, I would put even a half notch above Mitchell defensively. And you've got to wonder where Garrett Mitchell factors into the outfield now. He might come back late this year. It doesn't sound like it, but when you start to look toward next year on the outfield makeup, these guys are going to be here for a long time. Sal Frelick, who we talked about when Mitchell went down, unfortunately, Freilich also suffered an injury around the same time. He's still been out and he would have been the most logical guy to get the call-up when Mitchell went down. He is still one of the highest-rated prospects in the minor league system, and he's a center center fielder, too. I just don't know how you're going to pry Weimer out of center field. If he's hitting reasonably well, and he's still playing the defense that we've seen so far with his range, right fielders and left fielders for the Brewers, if Weimer's out there, he covers almost the entire outfield. You almost have to do nothing in right and left field. Just be up against the foul line and maybe 10 feet to your right or left. And that's all you need. He's got that kind of speed and range. And we've already seen him make dazzling catches against the wall, up at the wall, diving when he's coming in towards second base. I just don't know how they're going to put Garrett Mitchell back out there when Weimer's playing the way he is, if he does play this way for his full rookie campaign. But just a ton of fun to watch. And Corbin Burns, who was tremendous, Cy Burns on Wednesday, they asked him about Weimer's mullet. And he said that if this team makes a playoff run, They're all going to do mullets. Now, can you imagine this team winning the division, making a playoff run, getting to the World Series, and they're all donning the Mississippi mudflap haircut? I just, it's such a great Wisconsin Brewers story if that's what happens. I'm always rooting for the Brewers to make a deep run. We all want them to win a title so desperately and make a deep playoff run. But well, that would just be a cherry on top. If you've got Willie Adamas out there with the mullet and Tarang with the mullet and Yelich with the mullet, council's got to do it then, right? Pat Murphy, can we get old Pat with the mullet out there? That would be awesome. Well, that's what Bernsey said at the end of the game on Wednesday. If they continue to roll and they make a playoff run, expect everybody in the locker room to get that mullet haircut the way Joey Weimer has. Been a lot of fun to watch him. They do lose the series on Thursday, unfortunately. They had three runs in the first inning, had a quick 3-0 lead. Offense dried up after that. Back in the bullpen, not good on Thursday. Peter lucky he's been a little hit or miss. I know he was the guy that had good numbers at the end of the year last year, and they were relying on him, obviously, after they traded Hayter, relying on him at the end of last year and then thinking that he was going to be the setup guy, him and Matt Bush, some combo of that, heading into this year. Some nights he looks untouchable, 60 to 65% of the time, of the time, he looks untouchable. 30% of the time, he's been hittable and leaving balls in the zone like he did Thursday. And you just can't have that as a setup guy. You can't be 70-30. You got to be 90-10. You know, for a middle relief guy, a fifth inning guy, a sixth inning guy, a seventh inning guy, you get that 70-30 good to bad, 75-25 good to bad ratio. That's about what you expect from a guy getting into the game in the sixth or seventh inning. But if you're the eighth inning guy, the ninth inning guy has got to be 95-5 if you're a playoff team. And Devin has been. Devin's been 99-1. He hasn't even blown a save, but he's only given up one run. But if you're the setup guy, you've got to be pretty damn close to 85, 15, 90, 10. And Strezlecki just has not been that consistent this year. I do wonder if they'll keep him in that spot. They've got some options. Joel Piams, who did give up a run yesterday too, he's been really good and sort of an under-talked-about story that he came over in that William Contreras deal. He came over from Oakland as a relief pitcher with some decent numbers. He's been really pretty good last couple of times, giving up a home run. But I don't know who you slot in there right now. I would think Piamps would be the most logical guy. Elvis Peguero, who's also been kind of a revelation coming over in that Hunter Renfro trade. He's been really good, ERA around two five or two six. Maybe him, but he's very young. Just wonder who they'll slot in there for a little while and maybe give Strezlecki a bit of a break in that eighth inning because it was a 3-0 game, then a 3-1 game after the Piamps home run given up, and then a three-run eighth inning blew the game open. Eventually, Bryce Wilson comes in. He gave up a couple of runs. He's sort of a mop-up duty guy who's been pretty good this year, and it ends up being a 6-3 Orioles win. Should have had the sweep, but you take the series win against the third-best team record-wise in baseball. We'll see if the Orioles are there at the end of the year, but right now, that's what they are. You get back-to-back series wins, Pittsburgh had off on Thursday, so right now it's a one-game lead. It did shift a little bit. Pittsburgh got back in first place. Then they lost a couple of games to Oakland, who was coming to AmFam Field for a three-game set starting tonight. And the Brewers were able to capitalize on that with their wins against Cincinnati and the first two wins against Baltimore. They are now one game up in first place in the NL Central entering play tonight. The Oakland A's are in town. We discussed it on Friday. They right now, winning percentage-wise, are the third worst, or fourth now, worst winning percentage in the history of baseball. A sport that goes back to the 1870s and 1880s. Now, that said, they have won two of their last three series. They won a series against Atlanta, one of the best teams in the National League. Then they got swept, and then they won their series in Pittsburgh, lost the first game, and won the second two games in blowout fashion. Your expectation when a team is, what, 14 and 50? Is that what they are? The expectation is when the team you're rooting for is in first place and over 500, and you're at home, and you've got a team that's 15 or 14. Let me get the standings here. 14 and 50. I mean, my God. (laughs) 14 and 15. Although, when we talked about them on whatever day, Monday, they had a winning percentage of 187. That's all the way up to 219. A couple of wins can do a lot of good. They're 4 and 6 in their last 10. Which, for a team that's 14 and 50, is pretty good. Now, you want the sweep against bad teams like this. You see this. You're at home. You're a playoff, hopefully contending team. You've got one of the worst teams in baseball history coming to town. You want the sweep. We discussed that a few weeks ago. There are certain matchups you see where, okay, I feel comfortable saying we want a series win here. And there are the rare series where you say, before it even begins, we want the sweep. This is one of those where you want the sweep. But it is worth noting that... They have been playing a bit better recently. The offense seems to be getting it together a bit, and you just can't take anything for granted. They've got Adrian Hauser, odd-year Adrian on the hill tonight. A 7-10 first pitch, 3-10 on Saturday. Julio Tehran takes on Paul Blackburn, who just came back for Oakland. He was their all-star last year. I don't know who their all-star is going to be this year. They need to do away with that. We need to do away with every team gets one all-star. I realize they're trying to get as many eyes on the all-star game as possible. And if you are a fan of a terrible team, maybe the only chance of you watching the All-Star game is to see the one All-Star you have. But they need to do away with that. Adrian Hauser tonight. Tehran tomorrow, 3-10 first pitch. Freddie Peralta going on Sunday, a 110 first pitch. Then you're in Minnesota for two. Seems like that's always the case against the Twins. Two in Minnesota, two at home. And then after a break, you've got Pittsburgh, the first matchup of the year, right? You've got Pittsburgh in town Friday, Saturday, Sunday, next weekend at AmFam Field. But the A-Series starts tonight. Adrian Hauser... A 7-10 first pitch. Okay, moving over to the NBA real quick. NBA Finals, the Nuggets dominated in Miami in Game 3. Heat finally had a bad shooting day. All of the guys that have been playing out of their minds in support of Jimmy Butler, almost all of them had bad shooting nights. That's what we thought would happen in the first round. But they shot well and never stopped in the first, second, third round, and in the early part of this series, too. But they were all tough. Struess was pretty bad. Game Vincent had a bad night. Who's the other guy? Duncan Robinson had a bad night. And Caleb Martin had a bad night. And Denver moved the ball well. As we've discussed, they are the more talented team. They were hitting shots. Miami was not. And Denver won handily in game three. Both of my bets are still in play. I've got the large bet on the Nuggets to win in six or less. The lesser bet with the better odds of the Nuggets to win in five or less. Does that get underway again on Saturday or is it tonight? I'm pretty sure it's Saturday. But that game, game three, which we watched a bit of in the suite. Did I mention the suite? (laughs) At AmFam Field on Wednesday? Oh, it is tonight. That was the game that you would expect, that we all expected the Heat to play months earlier where all of these undrafted guys couldn't get it going against a superior team. The Nuggets won handily, 109-94. It is tonight, Game 4, Nuggets and Heat in Miami. And if the Nuggets win this, then, of course, we're knocking on the door of a double payday, which would be coming up on Monday in Game 5. Then we would get both. We'd get both the bets in 6 and in 5. I would be very happy for that to happen. Otherwise, the Bucks added another coach to the assistant coaching staff. I feel like Adrian Griffin is Thanos right now and he's acquiring all the different stones and they're all former Bucks assistant coaches and when he gets them all the whole franchise disappears. We were talking last time about Terry Stotts being back. Stats and Stotts, former assistant coach for George Carl, and then former head coach for two years after that, who was fired middle of the second season. He is going to be back as the offensive guy. Adrian Griffin, the more we read about him. And Adrian Griffin gave one of the all-time awkward pictures (laughs) during his introductory press conference. They did it in the email, by the way. We talked about that on Monday. I said, are they going to do this as an email? Are they going to live up to the whole this could have been an email mantra? I laughed so hard Monday night when I got an email from the Bucs, personal correspondence that everybody who subscribes to the Bucs website got, personal correspondence from the Bucs to this podcast. And it was welcoming Adrian Griffin as the head coach. I said, my God, they actually did it. (laughs) They did the whole this could have been an email. They actually did it. And then they also had an introductory press conference, and Griffin said all the right things. I mean, those press conferences are just a bunch of softballs, essentially, of what is your strategy offensively, strategy defensively, what do you think you can do differently, and how will you utilize Giannis? There were some interesting tidbits about the roster where he talked specifically about Giannis, of course, but Middleton, which I think just adds more and more credence to the idea or the rumor that he is going to sign a multi-year extension, which makes total sense. We've talked about this, or we talked about it about a week ago, The way the CBA works, if you let Middleton walk, that money you can't use anywhere else. You can only use it for Middleton. So even if you're going to say that Middleton is getting past his prime and he did have another surgery, that was announced yesterday. I think Woj had that tweet that he had a cleanup procedure on his knee, which we all expected. If you're looking at that and saying you're going to give this guy a multi-year deal, well, if you don't give him a multi-year deal, you cannot use that money on anybody else. If you sign Middleton to the multi-year deal – You're hedging that he can be himself or 80% of himself at his peak. And even if one of those things is true, or maybe he's even a little less than that, if you have him signed, you can at least use him as a trade asset in the future. Not signing him and letting him walk gives you absolutely nothing going forward. They have to sign him, and it sounds like they're going to. So he mentioned him. He did mention Drew Holiday. Which, again, maybe you trade him, but he's under contract for a couple more years. I don't really see him going anywhere. And he mentioned Brooke Lopez by name. There are certainly going to be teams that are going to try and sign Brooke Lopez. But this is the most logical place for him to be. If they can use him the same way that Bud sort of did. I know people hated the drop defense. I don't think Adrian Griffin's going to do a ton of drop defense. But Brooke Lopez finished second in defensive player of the year voting this year. You've got to find a way to use a guy with that skill set and the way that he blocks shots. He mentioned him specifically too. Uh, Not much else he can really say other than going on last year's roster, but those seem to indicate to me what we all thought in the offseason, that they're probably going to re-sign a lot of these guys. I'm really not sure how different the roster is going to look, honestly. And we talked on the air on either Wednesday or Thursday about it. This may be a situation where you run basically the same roster back. Maybe you try to improve on the fringes. It sounds like Javon Carter is going to opt out of his deal and look for a bigger payday, which probably is not going to be in Milwaukee. More power to him. He certainly earned that. You can have debates about whether or not he should have been playing more in the playoff series in Boston two years ago and in the playoff series against Miami this year. They used him a ton in the regular season. Did not want to use him in the playoffs for whatever reason. He has a $2 million or $2.5 million option that he could opt into, but he certainly could make $6, $7, 8000000 million a year somewhere else. But outside of improving a bit on the fringes with some of those more margin players like Grayson Allen and Javon Carter, guys like that, I think the core of this team is probably going to come back as is. Trades are always, always in play, but – I'm not sure how much they can really do based on the way the CBA works and where they are contractually and where they are in the luxury tax at this point. This may be a run-it-back situation with a different coaching staff, which I don't know that I hate. This team won the NBA Finals in 2021. They probably make the NBA Finals in 2022 if Chris Middleton is healthy. I believe they likely win that Boston series at home in Game 6 if Middleton is fully healthy and fully himself, which he was prior to that injury. So they probably make the finals. I don't know how things would have gone against Golden State with the Bucs, but I believe they make the finals in 2022 with Middleton. And then last year, best record in the NBA, number one overall seed, and got ambushed by a spark plug heat team in the 8-1 matchup in the first round. But this roster has had a ton of success. It may be a situation where because you can't do a lot, you run it back with what was the best record in the regular season. We can have a debate about what that even means anymore in the NBA with the way that Heat had played and how important is the regular season. But they were the best team in the NBA in the regular season, probably in the NBA Finals the year prior, and won a title the year before that. This could just be a situation where we run it back with the talent we have, with a new coaching staff, with some new philosophies, and some willingness to adjust. Adrian Griffin obviously understood the assignment because – He said the word adjustment in that press conference on Wednesday or Thursday. He said the word adjustment so many times. Bucks Twitter was fanning itself like a Southern debutante. My stars. They were fainting at the amount of times he said adjustments during the course of that press conference. He knew that's what Bucks fans wanted to hear based on the way that series went against the Heat. But he adds Joe Prunty to the coaching staff. Joe Prunty back in town. He was Jason Kidd's lead assistant, and then he was the head coach. When they fired Kid midseason, he was the head coach for the rest of that year. And in that playoff series against Boston that year, in the first round that went to seven games, Prunty was the head coach. Apparently, Giannis really liked him and still likes him. And they add another—they add another Infinity Stone. Next up, Larry Chriskowiak, <laughs> Coach K. Who are the other assistant coaches? We could all—we could bring all of them back. But those are the first two we've heard of. With Terry Stotts and Joe Prunty back in town on Adrian Griffin's coaching staff. But that was news over the weekend, the official introductory press conference. We got the email, we got the change on the website, and now we have the official introductory press conference. We're good to go there. And then finally today, oh, we could talk about Chris Paul for a second. I, I don't know. That was making the rounds on Twitter. There was the report that Chris Paul is getting cut by the Suns. And then about an hour or two later, Shams had a tweet that gave further context to it. And instead of just saying he's going to get cut – His tweet said the Suns were going to explore options they have until June 28th or June 27th, something like that, to either vest his current option on his contract or trade him or cut him. It feels like the likelihood is still they're going to cut him, but I think the Suns wanted to roll back that conversation because maybe there's somebody out there that would trade for him and they would give Phoenix an asset back or money back or a contract back or a player back. That's what I think happened. I think Phoenix had that leak come out and then had no no footing to stand on, no leverage whatsoever, and they wanted to <laughs> whisper into Shams's ear, hey, could you tweet this out that we're not necessarily just going to leave him on the side of the road like an old recliner? We may be willing to trade him. I don't know that that's going to happen, but that was the follow-up and more context. When the news came out that he was getting waived, a follow-up report had the Bucks listed among five or six different teams that would be interested in bringing him in. I don't know. I don't know how they'd afford him. Like we just talked about. I just don't know where the money would come from. They would probably have to be more in a trade situation. If the Bucs were to get him, they can't afford much more than the mid-level exception, which I believe is 5 or $6 million. Is Chris Paul going to play on a one-year 5 or $6 million deal? He's past his prime, and he's at the end of his career. But he's still productive, and he's a future Hall of Famer. I don't think he's at that point where he's playing on a year deal for 4 or 5000000 million ring-chasing. But that's about all they could afford. They could afford Cliff Paul. The Bucs could afford Cliff Paul, not Chris Paul. What is is Cliff Paul's contract status? They would probably be, if they really wanted Chris Paul, the Bucs probably would be somebody who would be looking to trade for him instead of just signing him to the mid-level or whatever contract league minimum, the veteran minimum. That's about all they have. That's about all the Bucs have to play with. In a hypothetical world where he could come to Milwaukee, do you want him? I don't know. I wanted him before he went to Phoenix. Whatever year that was, 2018, 2019, before the Drew trade, it felt like he was a guy based on his leadership, and he can be an off-putting guy too. We've heard plenty of stories about him behind the scenes that where teammates don't get along with him. But he's a floor general, and I would say one of the best point guards, facilitators that I've ever seen in my NBA viewing career. One of the best passers, gets people involved. His shot is not what it was. His first year in Phoenix, or second year in Phoenix, when they made the title run against the Bucs, he was a guy that could still pretty consistently drain that elbow jumper, the baseline mid range jumper. He could knock down a three here or there. That kind of evaporated on him this year. But still, he, he knows how to play the game. He knows how to find his spots. He knows how to find his teammates. Before he went to Phoenix, I thought that was the perfect fit, even though I didn't think it was going to happen, and it didn't happen. Now, I don't know. Where would you fit him if you're not trading Drew for him, if you're not working out some trade package where Drew is on his way out? And I don't want that. If that's the cost, I don't want that. I realize people get frustrated with Drew and playoff Drew and not hitting shots. If that's the way to get Chris Paul, that you have to package Drew in some package of players and money to get him, I don't want him. If you can just add Chris Paul trading marginal players in contracts or future draft picks, I don't even know how many future second-rounders. We gave up every second-round pick for the next decade to get Jay Crowder. I don't even know what kind of draft collateral the Bucks have to swing. If we're talking about trading – is Grayson under contract? If we're talking about trading Grayson Allen and a future second-rounder, multiple second-rounders for Chris Paul, okay, that's something I would entertain. But I'm not giving up a big piece to get Chris Paul back. And if you do that, how does that starting lineup work then? Is Chris Paul coming off the bench? Is Drew coming off the bench? Would you then have a starting five of Chris Paul, Drew Holiday, Middleton at the three, Giannis at the four, and Brooke at the five? I guess I don't hate that. I just don't know how that would work in the backcourt. The Bucs do need a true point guard. We said that when the season ended, that they have to go out and find a true point guard because when we get to the playoffs, Drew Holiday, for all of his faults in the playoffs, even in the regular season, he's not really a true point guard. He brings you some of that and some of that facilitating, and he obviously brings the defense even though Jimmy worked him in the playoffs. Jimmy would have worked anybody in the playoffs the way he was going in that round. But I felt, and a lot of Bucks fans felt coming out of that series, that they need a calm, composed point guard. Because in late-game situations, in games four and five, specifically in that series when the Bucs were melting down, Drew just had so many ill-advised non-point guard decisions and bad passes and chucking threes when it didn't make any sense. They need a poised, composed point guard, and Chris Paul would bring you that. I just don't know how that would work with the current roster, where he would fit in. I don't know. If you can get him for future picks and a marginal player, fine. If you can get him at the mid-level, fine. I don't know how the starting five works out, but that's Adrian Griffin's problem, then not my problem. It's not a bad problem to have. But I just don't see any world where they're able to work it trade-wise or money-wise. I would put it at a less than 1% chance, but that was a discussion being had on Bucks Twitter as well. And real quick, let's talk about the Live in PGA. Today, by the way, June 9th is the one-year anniversary of the first ever Live Invitational. And this guy, Jay Moynihan, the commissioner of the PGA, what a rough week he's had. Now, he's going to get a lot of money at the back end of this. Jay Moynihan, he's going to go down as one of the all-time hypocrites. Because when this live thing happened, and we all knew it was Saudi backed and the Saudi oil money, and that's how they were throwing around these guaranteed contracts, they gave Phil $200 million. They were just giving these guys contracts just to join the tour. In addition, all of these golfers could make money on the different events for live, and everybody, I'm pretty sure, at a live event gets paid. Last place makes six figures. The amount of money in the purses at live versus the PGA is insane. And then on top of that, they were giving guaranteed money just to come over. I realize there are going to be some political leanings here, and there's some dirty money conversations to be had about where all the money is coming from. But when that kind of money is out there, even guys that are rich, like Phil Mickelson and Brooks and all those guys, of course they're going to go. The number one thing when Liv was getting cranked up that I pointed to or learned was that Tiger Woods, arguably one of the greatest, the greatest golfer of all time. One of the greatest, arguably the greatest golfer of all time. Think of all the tournaments that Tiger has won and all the top 10 finishes and top five finishes he's had since 1996 when he turned pro. 1996 all the way to 2023. His total career earnings on the PGA, just in the earnings on the tournaments, he obviously makes billions of dollars in sponsorships and whatever else. He has made from the PGA... Earnings-wise, $122 million that whole time, from 96 to now. And Phil was getting $200 million just to sign his name to a live contract. You would have been insane to turn that down. And a lot of PGA guys did, but a lot made the jump. And the rumor was that John Rahm, the world's number one and personal friend of the show... <laughs> That he was about to make the jump, and that's what precipitated this happening. That he was in deep contract negotiations, and that's what precipitated this merger where the PGA essentially just had to wave the white flag and say, okay, let's try to find a way to bring these two things together, these two these 2 different golf tours together. But that's apparently what was leading up to this. And Jay Moynihan, for the last year since the first event a year ago, has been taking these golfers who made the jump across the coals and talking about that Saudi money and evoking 9-11 And 9-11 families in his conversations about these golfers taking the money from Liv. And he could not stop talking about this for a year. And then this week, he's shaking hands with Liv Golf. And he's probably accepting a pretty large payout himself. He is just going to go down as one of the all-time hypocrites in sports history. He will also go down a very rich man. I very much believe that he is just the front man right now for the whole thing, and he's the guy taking all of the heat in the interviews and has been all week and getting laughed at on social media. But at the end of the day, he will be getting a fat check, I am sure, and then he is going to fade away. But that apparently was the reason that this happened this week, was John Rahm was set to make the jump, and then in addition to all the other guys they have now on Live, He was about to make the jump, and the PGA just said, okay, we've got to find a way to bring these two things together to make this work. What that means going forward, no one seems to know. Both tours are going to play out their 2023 as is, it sounds like, and then how they meld together, I have no idea. And the PGA golfers have to be irate at Moynihan, too, the guys that didn't take the bag. Tiger Woods was reportedly offered $800 million to join Live and did not take it. Rory McIlroy was reportedly offered $200-plus million and did not take it. And those guys that turned it down to stay loyal to the PGA – They have to be fuming because now all the guys who made the leap took the money. Now they're all going to be allowed back on the PGA Tour events, and they were all in the majors anyway because those are separate from the PGA Tour. But now all those guys that made all that money a year later are going to be able to come back and play PGA events and play live events, and they got all the money from those guaranteed contracts. The loyal PGA golfers that had offers on the table that turned it down have to be just irate. We are, again, talking about rich guys getting even richer. I do understand that too. But how it's going to look after this year, I don't know. Liv has a team format. Will that make its way to the PGA? Liv plays 54 holes. I would assume the PGA is going to require that people play 72 holes. They're not going to change that up. Will they coexist as two different things, or will they blend together and make their schedules work? No idea beyond this year, but that was a major sports story, and Jay Moynihan was a huge villain of the week. We put him as the villain of the week in the sports world after that merger news came out on whatever day, Tuesday or Wednesday. All right, that'll do it for us here in your Friday. We'll get back after on Monday. We'll recap the Brewers series with the A's. If Adrian Griffin adds another former Bucks assistant, we'll be on top of that. Any Chris Paul news? Uh, we'll be discussing that on Monday. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.